You are listening to the Mango Tea Podcast, where we give you tea with a slice of mango. We are a nonpartisan Caribbean diaspora podcast serving up all the tea on news, culture, and history. This podcast was created for the diaspora to know what's happening in the Caribbean beyond the gossip. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Mango Tea Podcast. Um, This is one of our first episodes of 2022. Um, And following the tradition that we did last year, for the entire month of January, all of our content is going to be focused on Haiti. So today, we're going to be speaking and discussing on Haitian voodoo. And for this, we brought in an esteemed and illustrious guest right from the University of Plymouth of Florida, excuse me, Professor Ben. He is an associate professor in Haitian Creole and Haitian and Francophone Studies. Um, he is a Creolist by training from the University, Indiana University, uh, where he contributed to an editorial assistant um, to the Magisterial Haitian Creole English Bilingual Dictionary. He has bachelor's degrees in religious studies, a master's in French literature, um, a PhD in French linguistics. Um, his his range of study, his research focuses on the intersections of language, culture, and songs um, in Haiti, Jamaica, France, Germany, and the Netherlands. And his research kind of melds together. It's just also very, very cool. Um, linguistics, history, literature, and society. If you are at, if you are at his school, you can take his classes which is um, Intermediate Haitian Creole and Haitian Creole, Haitian culture and society. And I looked on Rate rate My Professor and he has super high ranking. So I would take the class if I went there. Um, He's also an author and he regularly publishes articles, which is also great um, if you're looking for a great teacher. So he recently published um, A Transatlantic History of Haitian Voodoo and and he's working on co-authoring and translating um, Stirring Up Stirring the Stirring Up the Pot of Haitian History, which is a translation of a 1976 Haitian Creole book. Um, his recent articles include um, he has a bunch of recent articles. I'll also post the link in the bio. Professor Ben, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jody, for, for having me. Um, so I have a question. What is your favorite mango? Right. Well, mango francique, c'est un type mango moins remé en pile. Mango francique. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with the francique? Probably Haiti's most famous variety of mango. Is it like... Have you heard of that? No. I, actually, I have. Professor Cillian mentioned it last year when we interviewed her. Um, and I think she said it's the same mangoes we get in New York. That's exported. I, right. I would imagine that that uh, that variety is exported from both Haiti and the Dominican Republic to okay. cities like New York. Okay. I'm not so sh- I'm not so sure how accurate the labeling is uh, okay. once it leaves Haiti, but I would imagine it is available. In in Florida, we don't really find Haitian mangoes except on rare occasion. Strangely enough, that's that's interesting because every summer I live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I kind of live in the heart of, um, uh, I would say, like 
old uh, Brooklyn. And if I go on Utica Avenue, Utica Avenue, Eastern Parkway, and I walk down Utica Avenue, there's a bunch of um, Korean stores. And at every single store in the summertime, I'll get some Haitian mangoes. Oh, okay. And they're labeled as Haitian? Yeah. Yep. They're oh, labeled as Haitian. You know what? Next time I come to Florida, I'm going to sneak into one of your classes and I'm going to bring you a box of mango. Okay. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> and good. And that, that's a promise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe dried so, ones. <laughs> dried ones. Got it. Um, so for our audience, I, I know I kind of, um, I, I read your bio from your website, but for, I want to give you an opportunity. Can you introduce yourself? Um, and, and can you let us know, like, how you got into, uh, why you decided to focus your research on um, Haiti um, and, and, and Haitian Creole? Sure. Well, it's a long story, but uh, I, I have been working uh, on Haitian Creole and Haitian studies since the mid-1990s. And uh, it, it was a natural fit for my a background and uh, personality and interests. So I, I gravitated toward Haitian Creole, Haitian studies, the more I learned about it. And, uh, you know, I never really looked back. I'm still learning about Haiti, Haitians, Haitian Creole, Haitian studies uh, at this point. So um, it's really just been a great uh, experience and a wonderful opportunity and a chance to uh, expand my mind. So, uh, as well as my research on Jamaica, on mm -hmm. uh, Arabic influences in French and German and Dutch. So all those, all those language areas mm -hmm. and uh, the chance to immerse myself in them are, are you know, experience of, experiences of enrichment. So uh, Haitian studies is equally enriching perhaps even more. Uh, if, if you look at my publications, you might think that, that it's the main thing that interests me. Yeah. And, and that is true. So okay, that's how I got that's into awesome. it. Just, uh, it blew my mind. Awesome. How many times have you been to Haiti? I've been to Haiti half dozen times mm -hmm. uh, for lengthier and also shorter trips, ranging between uh, four months and, um, you know, five days. So, uh, I started going in the late 1990s, uh, as a research assistant for Albert Waldman's dictionary. And I went there to recruit Haitian lexicographers, people who make dictionaries. Mm -hmm. So I spent several months in Port-au-Prince at that time, also in the countryside places like Baudin, which is near Jacmel in the Southeast. And mm -hmm. later on, I spent time with Catholic priests. Actually, on several occasions, I stayed with Catholic priests uh, in Baudin and also in Limonade near Cape Haitian. So I have been, I've had the opportunity, the privilege to visit several parts of Haiti. But uh, in terms of uh, academic work, a lot of it has ended up being in Port-au-Prince you know, in terms of resources, academics, Haitian intellectuals, that's where you'll most easily recruit them. So okay. I've spent more time in Port-au-Prince. That's awesome. 
I, I love that. So I want to jump right in to our topic for today um, and Haitian voodoo. So the reason I, we were talking before, but also one of the reasons why this came up, one of my best friends is Haitian um, and I'm Jamaican um, by birth and culture, everything, love being Jamaican, okay. love the Caribbean. Um, but one of my best friends, when we were in college, I remember us having a conversation about Haiti and the treatments of Haitians and also um, the topic of voodoo has come up and it's come up throughout or, or years of friendship, but there's kind of a, there's a stigma around Haitian voodoo outside of Haiti and inside of Haiti as well. So I want to jump right in. So how did ha um, Haitian voodoo come about? Is it different from any other type of voodoo? What, what is, what does it look like? Yeah, well, it, it's, uh, originates in deep antiquity, so deep in antiquity that uh, we don't really, we can't really say with confidence uh, how many, you know, millennia ago, a spirit based religions, uh, you know, developed and, and evolved through time. I mean, to, to many observers, these are among the most ancient religions, uh, certainly older than the monotheisms like Judaism or Christianity or Islam. So these are spirit-based religions. If you look at the monotheisms, you see that within them, the, you know, the agents of monotheism are interacting with spirit-based religions, casting out demons, you know, uh, you know, sort of situating the jinn in terms of Islam. So spirit-based religions, even in monotheistic texts, we have evidence are, are there, they, they exist, they pre-exist them. So there's no reason to think that Vodou or Vodun in the West African context or the Central African context, you know, are any less old. They're very, very old religions. So we're talking about mm -hmm. some of the oldest traditions known to humankind, preserved through time, faithfully, diligently. These are, you know, ancient let's say, intellectual archaeological artifacts, as well as living spiritual systems, as they are continuously practiced through the generations, through, through the millennia. So we're talking about very important, sacred, intangible parts of human heritage that emanate out of Africa, mm -hmm. um, you know, but... Uh, uh, belong to all of humanity insofar as we have access to the texts and the songs and the ceremonies and the traditions and even initiation in the case of some individuals who you know decide or are called by the spirits to initiate so so for me these are important ancient world religions equal and on a par with any other known religion so they're empirical phenomena that deserve, a, you know, serious study because they are connected to the oldest memories of humankind. So that's a big okay. deal. Okay. Okay. I, yeah. I'm, I'm right here with you. I'm learning. I'm taking my notes. Um, so there's a thing that it's um, voodoo is rooted in evil. And there's also been a thing that's been going around. Like I had a friend um, and we're, we're trying to bust those myths right now. I had a friend, he said he watched a documentary on PBS and he said that during the Haitian revolution, um, voodoo played a, a big role and 
they made the the um the revolutionaries made a pact with the devil to gain independence and he was like he's like i saw this on pbs and it was with a renowned um professor that was doing it and i was like i was i told him i was like you sound like full of shit um you're probably watching the wrong thing so is was is was there in the in your research has there been any indication that there was any um evil spirit or devil to you makings of the devil which is why they gained their freedom or is this um propaganda by the western um colonizers Oh, yeah, yeah. That's imperial propaganda. That's colonial BS. Okay. Uh, that, that, is, uh, that reflects the bias of the imperial Christian civilization that has dominated this uh, hemisphere for centuries and to the extent have, of their domination enslaved hundreds of millions of people in a barbarous uh, condition uh, in nearly every country in this hemisphere, right? mm -hmm. enslavement torture, state-sanctioned torture, you know, centuries of brutality, family separation, branding, uh, you know, the, the crimes against humanity are so grave and so deep. And the, the anti-African and the anti-African, um, you know, f philosophical and, and religious bias, prejudice, institutionalized, legalized hatred is, uh, it spews out like sewage everywhere you look. It's in, it's codified in the laws. They, they banned African religions. In Jamaica, let's take the Obia laws of 1897 that had immense, did immense harm on black religion, spirit-based religion, you know, uh, Jamaican spirit-based Traditions like Obia, mm -hmm. Kumina, Pokomina, and, and so many others, revivalism, so many traditions have been harmed by prejudice and hatred. These African religions are sources of power, political power, social coherence, organization, self-help. The white people didn't like that. Mm -hmm. And the white people still don't like that. And they still harbor these irrational prejudices that they've inherited from family to family, generation to generation, community to community. And there's a lot of self-hatred that the slave societies of yesterday and today, because we're still trying to untangle, get out of the chains ideologically. Mm -hmm. They're still leaving these horrible traces. So like this story about Bois the ceremony of 1791, that was a Dahomean blood pact. In Dahomean Vodun society, if you sacrifice a goat or a pig and secretly you take a little bit of its blood all together, it's a pact. It's a war pact of secrecy. It's the ultimate pact of secrecy. When you touch that blood to your mouth, you're bound to secrecy. It is not demonic. It is mm -hmm. natural. It is normal. Everybody, you know, the Christians are eating dead animals, too. <laughs> Everybody's killing animals and eating them just mm -hmm. because, you know, Haitian revolutionaries have a little ceremony yeah. where they dab a little blood on their lips. Doesn't meet, make them demonic or Satan worshipers. But that's what the Christians have construed that ceremony as in their 
many big lies that they feed on mm -hmm. and that they foist on the world. A pastor, a Christian pastor, a wealthy, powerful white pastor said that. He said that when Haiti was struggling economically after the earthquake, I don't know if it was Pat Robertson, it, one of it these was. fakes. It, it yeah, does. one of these fakes, yeah. fake, fake uh, people came, came on and made that false statement, that lie, the, another, you know, returning to the anti-African, anti-Haitian, anti-Vaudoo trope mm -hmm. that they feed on in their imperial religion, imperial capitalist, anti-black, anti-Haitian ideology. They just, they peddle it. So it's, uh, it's so widespread. Um, it's, it, 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 it is frustrating. So, you know, what, what your friend was telling you, there's a lot of discussion about it. Maybe they misunderstood. So there are people who are making this claim. Mm -hmm. But it is not, that is not the way that Haitian historical or mytho mythological history remembers Bois-Caïman. It has no, there's no demon, there's no Satan in there. You know, if we want to be more specific, in Haitian studies, we understand the ceremony, the, the, the participants, like Bookman, Bookman Dutty, mm -hmm. who was actually has a Jamaican last name, which is interesting. He was the leading Vaudou priest. He's calling on Ezili. Ezili Danta, or another one of the Ezili spirits. She's a very intense female spirit. She's a maternal spirit. And if you mess with her babies, she is very, very scary. Mm -hmm. She holds a very long knife and a, and a machete. That's not Satan. That's, that's a mother who is the victim of slavery and torture, who's, who's been, who's, whose baby has been stolen from her. So she's, this spirit reflects a deep trauma in Haitian slave history. So that's who we're talking about. We're not talking about Satan. There is no Satan mm -hmm. in Haitian Vaudou. There is no Satan to talk about. There are some hot, dangerous spirits, no doubt about it. Yeah. But uh, there's no, there's no like big Satan in, sort of in a polarity relationship with God in Haitian Vaudou. That's not. That's the Christian religion. So the Christians, in a way, are superimposing their ideologies everywhere they go, mm -hmm. whether it's the way they analyze Islam, uh, Jews, Vaudouists, Hindus, or whatever. So it's, it's, so I, I also, I want to get into this as well, um, about separation as well. So when I was talking to my best friend, cause I spoke, I, I was speaking to her before I got in this interview and she was telling me that even within her family, um, being accused of um, being a voodooist is like, a, it's a big thing. It's like, it can separate, break up, break apart families, everything. And now with like fets and carnival in Haiti, they're saying that is a part of um, voodoo and it's, and it's, um, it's, it's a part of who voodoo and it's quote unquote evil as well is the, the fets and the, and there's fets and carnival across the Caribbean. Um, but they're saying that version in Haiti is, voodoo and evil is are those celebrations a part of the voodoo religion 
Well, that you know, the kind of critique that you're uh, referring to is a kind of far right wing Protestant critique. Mm -hmm. and we should also remember that you have more centrist and also more syncretist Christians, particularly within the Catholic community who practice both Catholicism and Vaudoux without any feeling of contradiction. But uh, the Protestants who have been building strength and uh, being more and more sort of voracious in their attacks have taken an extremist position uh, where everything that is not Protestant is, is bad. Now, they have a point in the sense that there are lots of things about Carnaval and about La Ra, which is a kind of festival parading season that builds up into Easter. There's a lot of Vodou songs. A lot of the people who are the best paraders, the best members of the carnival communities and la la, they come from Vodou temples. They organize in the temples. They learn their songs in temples. They're steeped in Vodou temple culture. You can't mm -hmm. like, ask them to put away their culture and, and put it in a bag when they go out for their parades. It they emanate, breathe, radiate Vodou. So that's true. They're not hiding their identities. They do sometimes have little, you know, like Vodou rituals right in the middle of the streets. So you can see a kind of blending of secular and sacred in a lot of these parading groups. But the thing is, that's who they are. So if you're a Protestant and you don't like to see like some public displays of Vodou, well, that's perhaps maybe not the right group for you. So I can see that. I can see where they're coming from. Vodou is, you know, like really widely spread, both in the sacred religious context, but then mm -hmm. also in these popular demonstrations, like you say, carnival, la la, and lots of other things. Even Christmas has, everything has a Vodou connotation or, or can have yeah. a Vodou reading or a manifestation in Haiti. Okay. You know? My other question is, and this, this has like racked my brain forever. Um, Haiti, for all the Haitians that I've interacted with, they're deeply, deeply, deeply religious in the Christian faith, like deeply. I have a friend um, where he told me he was baptized at seven and became a deacon at nine. I have another friend, when I, my best friend, when I first met her in college, she was deeply, deeply religious. And that's, so how, what, what was that pivot from voodoo to Christianism and the, the machine of Christianism, uh, Christianity, um, becoming such a full force in the country. Yeah, wow. It's such a huge topic. I mean, for one thing, the Code Noir, the Black Code of 1685, it prohibited every single religion except for Roman Catholicism. Oh. So Roman Catholicism was the official religion of Saint-Domingue, the French colony. And actually, Protestantism was strictly banned. So... You know, Roman Catholicism was the national state religion. So Christianity is built in. It's hardwired into the origins of the colony. It was a French Catholic colonial system. And, uh, you know, Catholic priests were sent from France and from the Catholic world for really decades and at Haitian independence, the Catholic Church, being the Euro Eurocentric racist thing that it was, basically withdrew and only returned 
1860. So you do have a period from 1804 to 1860 where the Catholic Church is basically absent, but a, you know, a, a diehard Catholic, pro-Catholic president, Geoffrey, re-invited them, and that brought with, brought with them many, many European Catholic priests to set up schools. So not only have the Haitians received much European Christian influence through you know, systematic missionizing, but also through schools, education, you know, where you would get Catholic priests providing education in math and biology and all the topics of the curriculum. So on top of that, then in the 19th century, the, the Protestants from the United States with all their uh, money and influence start flooding in, starting with the Methodists and the Episcopalians. Fortunately, in many instances, African-American pastors and priests came uh, to do that early Protestant work. But, uh, you know, in the 20th century, then you sort of have the floodgates lifted and you have all kinds of North American and Canadian uh, Protestant evangelical influences, Mennonite. Those were the ones who were kidnapped recently. And as the Haitian state hasn't really been fulfilling its duties to take care of the Haitian people, the missionaries have felt emboldened to invest even more work power and money and influence and, and uh, equipment and infrastructure into Haitian Catholic communities. So if you're a Haitian and you see all these foreigners coming in with money and solar panels and satellite dishes mm -hmm. and uh, refrigerators, and you're looking at the voodoo priest, Who's supplying him with dough? Like nobody. And then you look over, at the, over the, across the street and the Protestants are building a new church and they've got nice cars and they've got food that they're giving away. Mm -hmm. So through co corruption and corrosion and through resource distribution, the Protestants have been able to make major progress uh, in converting, pseudo-converting Haitians. So... Wow. Sincerely converting them in, in many instances. Wow. That is that is interesting. I think we, we all knew it, but I feel like I knew it that because um, I've been talking about the idea as well, because I remember um, I when I used to go to church, they would be like world missions and they would go all over the world. But I realized they would only go to countries that were majority black um, and they would go to do these conversions um, and they went a lot of a lot of churches went to Haiti um, to do missions to spread the gospel and do humanitarian aid. But it seems like they did a lot more harm than good. Well, that's a tough one. That's a it's a hard one to call. Uh, you know, with with confidence, you have to do a lot of research. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely, you know, Jonathan Katz. Uh, you know, other scholars have been critiquing the over-reliance on NGOs and foreign aid organizations. Uh, there, there's a huge, there's a significant, Mark Schuler there's an, uh, is another scholar who is criticizing the, you know, the abusive uh, behavior of foreigners and the influence that they, that they demand and command within the country and the corruption that they breed. So, but, uh, it's it's very that's a tough call. Uh, I'm not a specialist in missionology, mm -hmm. but I mean, I definitely think that 
Christian religion has, in terms of being the agent of enslavement and colonialism, and of neo-colonialism, has, has been extremely harmful up to the present point in, in many respects. But then we also have to remember transformations occurring within Christianity. If you take, for example, the arrival of liberation theology within the Catholic context, uh, you, you take the Tile Eglise, so small church movement, and the democratizing efforts that they engaged in. If you take the Vatican II uh, effort to advance Haitian Creole and Haitian Creole's important place in the Catholic Church today. Mm-hmm. And if you also, and just to give another example, so to give two sides of the story, Bibla, the Haitian Bible, is a Haitian Creole document produced by Protestants. So that's a written book. You, if you read it, you will gain incredible knowledge about the past, antiquity. You might end up crazy too, <laughs> yeah. Like so many people who read the Bible too much become. But the point is, it's a it's a major tool for literacy, and you know there are Haitians who believe literacy is uh, a, a huge and damaging part of Westernization too. So that's the, another matter that's up for debate. Uh, but I tend to think that literacy is critical within a Western imperial framework for development. But uh, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a definitely as harmful as uh, helpful. Probably more harmful than helpful if you take the you know the sum of all things. Mm-hmm. That that's tough to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, let's um, flip the the script the script a little bit. Um, so your recent let's talk about your latest book. Um, what is it about? Right. Yeah. So. Uh, the transatlantic uh, history of Haitian vodou. Mm-hmm. What I tried to do there that uh, I don't think has been done quite well enough and why I spent all those years uh, uh, working on that project was to get into the African sources and the African historical origins of the Haitian people, both politically and religiously. So the fr- chapter one, mm-hmm. I look at the African political situation that prevailed at the time of slave trading. So I wanted to know who did the slave traders, and in the context of Alada and Hueda and Dahomey, the three African kingdoms that I focus on, that means looking at the African armies and the African kingdoms and administrations that rounded up rivals and enemies, mm-hmm. both outside of the kingdoms and inside of the kingdoms for sale and then for elimination. So, you know, that meant looking at all of the kings in the Dahomeyan kingdom between 1620 and, you know, 1791. So when the Haitian Revolution starts, that's when my, the the period of enslavement and transatlantic uh, shipping ends, at least for Saint-Domingue. Mm-hmm. So looking at the kings, who were the kings? What were their political and military actions during their uh, tenures, during their reigns? So that meant looking at major kings like King Agadja and King Tegbesu. So they, they held power for you know decades on end, and their armies and their administrations systematically focused the whole economy mm-hmm. was based on capturing enemies and vulnerable populations 
at the peripheries of their kingdoms and occasionally selling off threatening individuals within the kingdoms like debtors or uh, criminals, murderers, adulterers, those kinds of people. So I looked at the circumstances of enslavement. How did, essentially, how did people end up falling into slavery? And then how did they go from where they were into the slave system? So marched in coffles in, you know, to the coast, held in, in barracoons, and then purchased usually by white people. Mm-hmm. So most of the traders, uh, majority of the African traders then would transact with whites who came to the coastal areas, but did not venture in to capture slaves. They could not. They were not welcome. They would be slaughtered. So basically looking at African and European transactions in the slave trading period. So that's the first chapter. Second chapter is looking at Vodun religion as practiced both by those with power, Mm -hmm. the kings, and those without power, so their victims. Uh, So to understand how did Haitians carry across an African religion like Vodou, where did it come from, and how did it resemble the religion of the African kingdoms that they lived in? So, you know, that, that, that means looking at various uh, layers of religious practice in those kingdoms uh, through the existing records that we have from those centuries, so 1620 mm-hmm. to 1791, but then also looking at the 19th and 20th century research, which is much, much more abundant. So there's not a lot of good, um, respectful, empirical work from the slave trade. It's like slave traders don't really have a very high degree of respect for African people of you know, or their cultures on any level. Yeah. Like they, they, they tend to describe African religious practices with you know, derogatory language. But they still do describe African religious practices. Okay. But they describe them with demeaning language. So you have to go into the 19th and 20th century, really 20th century anthropological research to find good descriptions of Vodun. But then you're already 150 years out of the historical period that is your focus. So there are problems. Uh, but you have to, in a way, reconstruct as best you can, for instance, spiritual traditions like those around Dongbi. Dongbi is the serpent spirit who brings prosperity and fertility and has a temple in Weda, which is still there today. So oh, wow. Dongbi, this, this, yes, it has several hundred initiates who serve that spirit you know, exclusively. In Haiti, we have Dongbe also, and we have Dombala. So Don is the word for serpent in okay. the Fon and the Aja languages. So we can find existing serpent veneration communities in West Africa today mm-hmm. and in Haiti, and they are very well organized and, um, you know, uh, maintain the traditions coherently on both sides of the Atlantic. So that chapter looks at those kinds of communities and tries to build uh, evidence about transatlantic survivals, which are very, very abundant in Haiti. So it's, it's an exciting area. Also okay. in Jamaica, 
If you okay. take Obia, Kumina, Revivalism, Pokumina, throughout the Caribbean, really. Mm -hmm. Wow, that that's so interesting. I remember I, I I did part of my schooling in Jamaica. I remember learning about Pokumania. Um, of course, I knew about Obia as well, but this is... This is, again, this is blowing my mind. This is blowing my mind. So I'll definitely be getting your book. I found it on Amazon. Um, and from our listeners, I'll also post a link um, to the book when I when the episode is launched. Um, one more question. Um, what's your favorite tea? Well, I'm into green tea. Uh, I mm -hmm. have uh, a Korean family members. Uh, I'm married mm -hmm. into a, a Korean family. So uh, we, we enjoy our green teas. Uh, okay. We do we do think that uh, they benefit our cardiac health uh, with the antioxidants that uh, they are so rich in. So we try mm -hmm. to take that take advantage of those of most healthy uh, antioxidants in green tea as much as possible. But I'm definitely addicted to coffee, so I'm trying to trying to cut back <laughs> on the coffee addiction and get more into green tea. Thank you for listening to another episode of Mango Tea Podcast and, of course, sipping tea with us. Like this episode, download, and most importantly, share. Follow us on all social media at Mango Tea Podcast. And, of course, don't forget your mango.